0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. P.T. Barnum, sometimes known as the Prince of Humbug, was born in Connecticut in 1810. In many ways, he personified the American character that Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville described in his book Democracy in America. Barnum delighted in making money and telling the truth as he saw it. Some truths were told in the political arena, where he was twice a member of the Connecticut legislature and, in the interim, mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Some of his truths were lies when they were told to other people, like the history of some of his circus performers. Other truths were told in his newspapers. P.T. Barnum, P.T. as he liked to be called, was best known as the creator of the Best Show on Earth and the Barnum & Bailey Circus. I spoke with P.T. Barnum, personified by Doug Mishler, in the studios of Radio Curious in July of 1996, when this program was originally broadcast. We began when I asked P.T. why he wanted to create a circus.
1: Why a circus? Why did you want to create a circus?
2: Well, I wanted after my uh, museum career, my museum had burned down for the second time in three years, I I took it as a sign from God that I should move on to another uh, occupation. I wanted the circus because I wanted to create something grand, moral, and edifying, something colossal that the world and the American public had never seen before. Uh, I like to say something that would be worthy of its originator and worthy of the country that gave him birth. So I created the circus to be something stupendous, something beyond all imagining.
1: How did you go about it? How did you organize it?
2: Well, it, it, it started with uh, several men, circus men coming to me and uh, believing that they could hire PT's name to be used for their circus. And of course, I became involved in that way, but they quickly learned that if you involve pt barnum's name you get pt barnum and very quickly i took over control of the circus within a year or two so really it was an established circus well established by these two other gentlemen just slightly before i joined and then um, run by myself and another partner for a few years before i met Uh, James A. Bailey, who was really the genius behind the everyday functioning of my circus. Which became the Barnum & Bailey Circus. It became the Barnum & Bailey Circus. We called it the greatest show on earth before Mr. Bailey came aboard, but when he did, we certainly were
1: then, easily, the greatest show on earth, and still are. My recollection of uh, seeing the, um, I guess it would be the 1950 edition of uh, the Barnum & Bailey Circus, some uh, 60 or so years after you died, a difficult thing. Uh, Yes, it would be difficult for you to see it, Uh, but I was there. Um, It seems like you exploited people. Uh, You had midgets, you had extremely obese people, you had people with very odd physical deformities. Uh, How is that moral to exploit people, to show them off to others to make money? Well, I didn't, this exploitation I don't think is an occurrence. I think
2: you're speaking of my freaks, uh, my sideshows with Siamese twins with people who are born without arms or without legs or uh, little people or, as you say, fat ladies, Um, giants, bearded ladies. We ran the gamut. We had the greatest of all possible combinations in our sideshow. Uh, But to say that we exploited them um, has nothing to do with the truth. You must know William Bennett, a newspaper man who has been my enemy for many years of bled out many stories about my evil ways, uh, none of which are true, of course. Um, we never did exploit them. If, if you wish to de- describe it as exploitation, to bring someone before the American public who has no other way of earning a living in a society where he was ostracized. They would be ostracized for their deformities, if you will, or, or what God had done to them. Um, ostracized unable to find employment, uh, perhaps in some communities even seen as as cursed by God and something evil. I brought them before the American public, allowed them to earn a substantial living, I educated many of them, I purchased their clothing, I fed them, I housed them, Uh, I allowed each one of them to sell a book of their life stories, small booklets that they themselves sold. I purchased the books published them, and they kept all the money. So I don't think there was a monetary exploitation there. Plus, we asked people to come in and see the circus and speak to these people and discover, as we said, that, that in their emotions, in their lives, in their life beliefs and desires, they were just as human as you or I. And so we asked people to come in and meet them and understand that they are not abnormalities, but human beings. So in a sense, there was no exploitation here. We were trying to allow the American public to become uplifted and edified about
1: some of God's more curious decisions. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, and, and this morning as we're talking, uh, uh, you uh, speak of God and, and morality. And from yes. time to time, you were referred to as Reverend Barnum. Yes, I'm very proud of that. Uh, tell me, well, are, are, do you have a theological background? Well, I have no theological background
2: except what I've learned on my own. I'm, I'm primarily self-educated. My father died when I was 16 and I lived on a small farm, so I, I really gained no education through my youth. Uh, but I became a universalist uh, early in my life, turning away from the congregationalist religion of my parents, which is a a dark, rayless, starless
1: abyss of a religion
2: with their belief in predestination.
1: Describing it as dark, rayless, and starless, how would you describe Universalism? Well, Universalism
2: believes in a just and happy God. God will never leave anything until it is set right. Uh, My God, our God, in the Universalist belief, never sends poverty, accident, disease, or some so-called evil except for some ultimate good purpose now it may be difficult to understand that purpose at the moment but if we look and look within ourselves primarily we will find the answer Uh, I went bankrupt at one time and I always have believed that it was the bull run of my life's battles Um, but and it was a crushing defeat but it only presaged the victories that were to follow so everything, this is the universalist faith. It's a yeah. very optimistic faith. It believes in the equality of all men and women. It believes that all people are select and go to heaven, um, the sinner and the saint. Though they may not share the same space in heaven, eventually, if God is God, as we believe, God must make every man perfect in the end. Nothing is ever settled until it is set right by God. It is impossible to be any other way. So, if you are a sinner, you will ultimately, though it may take a long time, you
1: will ultimately be raised up to the level of all others. Uh-huh. In your lifetime, you rode a roller coaster of money uh, from creating a huge amount uh, to going bankrupt to creating more again. hmm What did you see as the role of money um, particularly during the jacksonian era and up through the civil war and the reconstructionist time well the role of money has always been
2: it is, there's been some comment by mr de tocqueville as you say who about the role of money and that americans had a he called it a sort love of acquisition um, i believe and many believe that barnum is a man who has the same sort of love that i've made comments that i The only music I knew was the sound of money in my purse. And then I enjoyed the cabs of Paris because I couldn't take home the night's receipts on my purse and I needed a carriage to carry them. And people have said that Barnum has a very shallow view of life and that money is his ultimate goal. But that's not the case. When I created my circus, the only demands I had was that it not lose money. I had enough money. Whether or not it made money was unimportant. What I wanted to bring the people was some grand new entertainment that would dazzle them, which Which, I have done. Which came in the form of the circus. In the circus. But even in my museum days, people would come into my museum and find 250,000 different objects. If the Fiji mermaid was not as real or what they had hoped, there were 249,900 some other objects to amaze them, my aquaria with white whales, the first live whales ever presented in the world, the first aquaria ever created, my theater stage, which was the first to allow legitimate, proper, moral entertainments on the theater stage without prostitutes involved in the audience or the vile consumption of liquor. These are the types of things I gave the American public, and and though I gained money out of this, and I made Myself wealthy, there was also a purpose in that wealth that we must it, to make money the standard of merit would make me sick. It is a foolish, pitiful, disgraceful society that uplifts the booby or tyrant to its highest level simply because they have more gold, while the good mind and great heart are trampled in the dust simply because they are poor. I believe we have avoided that. I have avoided that, and and have tried to contribute money to schools and hospitals, building uh, scientific museums donated to Tufts University, um, even giving money to the Congregationalist Church, because though they may be the misguided church and not understand God completely, they are still, in some small ways, doing some good works, as long as the reverend rascals, the drunks and seducers of that religion, do not have that money for their own personal use. So money became a vehicle, it became a tool. Money becomes a vehicle, a tool. I don't think I could have become active in politics without my wealth. I don't think I could have then stood up in the Connecticut legislature and be respected for a call to enfranchise the Negro man in this country uh, as I did, the first man in Connecticut to do that, if I had not had the wealth to gain the position. It is a unfortunate commentary of politics, but politics is an oftentimes an unfortunate
1: business. Yeah, yeah. Yet, in your lifetime, people called you a thief. Well, that was only Mr. Bennett, um, because he
2: wished to pay me more money than a plot of land was worth. He came to me with a business proposition. And who is this Mr. Mr. Bennett? Mr. Bennett, he's a scurrilous editor, uh, not a good editor like my good friend Horace Greeley, uh, he publishes another rag in new york city in competition with the enlightened and uh, wisdom of my friend uh, old horace mr bennett uh... came to me and wanted a new building and after my museum had burned down he wished to purchase the property and he offered me five hundred thousand dollars which was two hundred thousand dollars more than the property was worth and i took the money of course as he offered it mm-hmm. then he came back later and said that the that he had overpaid me, he had now found out, and he wanted the $200,000 back, which since it was a business deal, and between gentlemen, I refused to give the money back. He had made the deal himself, and he felt this was crooked. He accused me of many things, but you will find no evidence in any other newspaper. You will find no commentary by anyone that Barnum defrauded them. Barnum has always given more than double his money's worth. If you come to my museum for a nickel, you had 250,000 objects. It, most people stayed the entire day for a nickel. If you come to my circus for a dime or 25 cents or 50 cents if you want the luxurious boxes in the center ring, for 50 cents you will get a three and a half to a four hour entertainment. Nonstop, three rings, four stages on the Hippodrome track. This is
1: not theft. All right. <laughs> I'll accept that. When you have three. <laughs> Um, uh, when you have three rings or four stages, yes. um, does, uh, and they're all going at once, mm-hmm. does the, does that, uh, is that a setup to allow for a sleight of hand on some so that uh, you can see things that are otherwise not really happening? No, uh, the stages, it's because we have so much in our circus. We
2: want to bring the people a dazzling, dazzling array of amusements. And perhaps the only commentary, perhaps the only negative effect of the circus has been described in the new york times as too much of a good thing that too much of a circus was only good for the undertaker or the doctor uh and that some people have pitied children i i have a concern as some commentators have said they pity little children who come to the circus because their necks are wrenched from side to side as they try to take it all in that goes before them But no, there is no sleight of hand here. Each act, most of the acts, have never before been seen in America. Most of the acts are such utmost quality. Uh, Only the quality acts can be seen in Barnum and Bailey. If you wish something inferior, go to the Ringling Brothers, the Ringling Brothers with their one dog and one pony, supposedly grand show. The Seven Brothers do everything in the show. We have 2,000 employees. It is almost insulting,
1: sir, to say that our show is some kind of scam. Well, I want to ask you about that. First, I want to say that my guest this week is Phineas T. Barnum, known as P.T. P.T. Barnum, uh, the Prince of Humbug, who uh, lived in the United States from 1810 to 1888. 1891, but 18... I'm still alive. Who's counting? You're listening to Radio <laughs> Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. P.T., when you put the circus together... Yes. How did you create the characters? Did you have runners going out to find people who were skilled and walking on a rope we, or who looked unusual? We scour the world. We have agents all
2: over the world. I make countless trips each year, probably five or six trips to Europe each year looking for talent. Uh, we have, a course, since we are a grand institution and because the name Barnum is attached to it, we get of, countless inquiries from performers and acts and other people from around the world asking to join. And so we must go see them and see if they're quality enough to mm-hmm. fit into our, our troupe. So that is the way we do it. And it's the same with animals. We are always looking for the most exotic animals uh, from around the world, whether it be a camel, leopard, a blood-sweating beast of the Holy Writ, or Jumbo the elephant, which I brought over just a few years ago, purchasing him from the uh,
1: English zoo. And what year was that? That was you brought him over? 1881. Uh huh. Um, to shift topics a little bit, but I still think in character with you. Yes, sir. Uh, practical jokes were a yes. love of your life. Uh, absolutely. You tell us about that. Well, I, I learned very early on in my youth
2: in Bethel, Connecticut, that practical jokes were a very American art form. Uh, that it is very distinctively American, and is b- because of our American democracy our sense of equality. We play practical jokes on each other to constantly test ourselves, to see if we can outwit our friends. You know it is true that even in in simple joke telling, if a a friend tells you a joke, you feel determined to tell him a funnier joke. Right, tell one back. And the same with practical jokes. You are judged in the society on your merit of how well your wits can allow you to play a practical joke and how well you take a practical joke. Tell us one. Well, a very brief one. I, I used to have a very small one. I once dared the American public to come in and see my cherry-colored cat. And I was told by many people, well, Barnum, you're a fool. There are no things such as a cherry colored cat. And they came in to see me, and I I brought out a bag, and I dumped out on the stage a black cat. And I said, well, of course, as we all know, many cherries are black. And that was a small practical Mm -hmm. joke. Mm -hmm. Perhaps another was my... Well, my Hoboken buffalo hunt, where I had people go to Hoboken by boat from New York City to see a free buffalo hunt, and they arrived, and when they came there, they, they saw a very tired, old, decrepit buffalo being lassoed by a cowboy who pulled it slowly, ever so slowly, off the side of the arena. Of course, it had to be slow. The buffalo could barely walk. And they, this was a humbug. And as the first boat went back, to New York. A second boat was coming over, and the second boat called over to the first. Well, how was the buffalo hunt? And the first boat replied, a complete humbug, but hurrah for who thought it up. They felt thrilled to have been outwitted in yeah. this affair, because they should have known that a man who expects something for nothing is sure to be cheated, and generally deserves to be. And that is part of this Practical jokes, some of my other practical jokes would take much too long, such as my Ivy Island story, and uh, perhaps one more. We had a blood-sweating, uh, sorry, we had a man-eating chicken. We advertised a man-eating chicken with a giant poster of a chicken with long teeth with blood dripping off of them. And people came into the sideshow to see a man eating, eating chicken. Yeah. You have it. Many
1: people yeah. don't get this right yeah. away, but... yeah. Um, Quickly, before we uh, close, I want to ask you about uh, your philosophy towards women's right to vote. I understand that that, uh, that women should own property, could have education, but not vote. Why do you draw the line there? Well, voting, as I discovered, as you well know, that voting
2: day in most communities is a sordid affair. Men come to town and drink and carouse. Uh, their conduct is immoral and impolite at best. And for any woman, a woman is is based on her virtue, her morality, her piety, her purity. And to become involved in the political process, the the voting, uh, would only degrade her. And by degrading her, degrade the home, degrade our families, and lead to the end of American culture and American civilization. The woman should though, because of her moral morality and piety, have a voice in the laws. She should we should not be afraid to let women speak. They have wisdom and after all, they are ordained by God with more morality and piety than we men. So we must listen to them to give us
1: proper direction. But to go in the voting box, I'm afraid, would destroy the very morality they wish. Well I think some of our listeners in the nineteen nineties may take issue with that, but uh We'll see if they do. Well, I don't know what's happened to your country. Yes. Uh, Before we close, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at the end of an interview. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Interesting book I've read
2: lately. Well, perhaps the most interesting book, the most important book I think anyone at this time could read uh, that would uplift them and improve their lives, their children's lives, and ultimately improve this nation is my own autobiography. By P.T. Barnum. By P.T. Barnum. My, li- my Toils and Struggles is its name. It comes out every year with a new chapter chronicling what I have done that year. And I think in this is, is really a blueprint of how to make it in America, how democracy, what it is all about, what it allows us to do, the sense of equality. You see before you were a man of some wealth, but when I was 16 and my father died, I had to borrow shoes to go to the funeral. I've made it on my own by my own honest efforts.
1: And by reading my book, you, too, will learn how to prosper in this life. Well, we'll give it a try. P.T. Barnum, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Thank Carrier. you very much. And Doug Mishler, uh, the on he <laughs> Is he here? he uh, here? Welcome to Radio Carrier. Well, thank you very much. As a professor of American culture, mm-hmm. he presently at the University of Nevada, and uh, you're seated at Western Washington in Bellingham. Mm-hmm. Western Washington University, yes, sir. How was it that you chose P.T. Barnum?
2: Well, P.T. Barnum came because of my, I was studying American culture and I I came we decided I had some knowledge of the circus from being a performer a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And we decided that, I I had this question of why has the circus existed, existed since 1792 and continuously evolved in American life? What does it say about American culture that we
1: need the circus? Has it changed over time? What's the answer to that? Oh, it has changed over time. Maybe I knew what what it says about America. Well,
2: that's a very lengthy answer. (laughs) Uh, It says that in in the old days, the circus was seen as something Mm -hmm. avant-garde, under Barnum especially, something new and avant-garde with with sort of a surreal presence, even in the 19th century. Now, in the 20th century, the circus has changed, as we all think of today. Most people would say, well, I go for nostalgia. Why go to take the kids? I don't take the circus seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a fundamental shift. And I think it says something about the society and the culture. The circus has sort of been overrun by more immediate medium like radio, yeah, uh, like the cinema, and now television, yeah. yes. Yeah. It, but though there are some circuses that are going back to one ring shows like Cirque du Soleil out of Montreal, um, and some other shows, The Big Apple and their circus flora elsewhere in the United States, which are one-ring circuses, which are going back to a different, almost theatrical format, and are bringing back that cutting-edge entertainment that the circus was of Barnum a um, mm-hmm. hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So I became interested in Barnum through trying to understand the circus. I ran into this great character who was at once very moral and very, very pious, but also very pompous, uh, a man who has a reputation for humbug, for cheating, but when you look at him didn't believe, and I don't think really did cheat people. He, he played with their wits. He tried to test himself against them. Very American, saying, mm-hmm. you rely on yourself to think for yourself, to decide, well, now match your wits with the best, with yeah. me P.T. Barnum. Yeah. And I think that's very American, and the Americans loved it. Um, mm-hmm. He was considered an American institution. When I do Barnum, I usually just start with, well, you've been waiting for Barnum? Well, I'm Barnum. And that was his traditional greeting. And when he did it, people just went wild. He was, during the 19th century, I think it's arguable that he was the most uh, imp- most famous American. Uh, everybody knew Barnum. All over the world they knew Barnum. There's a great story he tells of Ulysses S. Grant after he left the White House going around the world. Yeah. And Barnum said, now, Grant, how does it feel to be the most famous man in all the most famous American in all the world and Grant said, oh you have it wrong, everywhere I went all they wanted to know was do you know Barnum? and then he said he shook hands 10,000 times by proxy for Barnum Uh, so he's a fascinating character he's much more deep and interesting and philosophical than I would have ever imagined Uh, you think of him as just being a circus man but he was much more and he was a businessman of
1: incredible energy he was always in 10 businesses at once and it's clear you're full of energy and just watching you as we're talking uh, you love this guy and what I, you're doing I really do like him uh, hes I always keep finding new
2: ways to use him mm-hmm. um, I, in a way I chose Barnum because I'm not an actor I am an academic and I'm kind of expressive perhaps but I'm still an academic and i I like Barnum because all I have to do is take my own minimal energy and expand it very largely and just get a little more pompous or maybe a lot more pompous, I hope. And that becomes Barnum. And and I love the fact that he's pompous, but he's always winking and trying to tell the people that he knows it's a game, that yeah. this pomposity is part of the character persona. Does that come across, the fact that he knows it's a game? I think it does. Every now and then you get someone who doesn't understand it, but most people see it and say, yes, yeah. it's it's clear that He's just larger than life. He knows he's larger than life, and he's having fun
1: with it, but he's, no. he's harmless in a way, and he's enjoyable to play with, and we take pride in it. Well, Doug, I want to thank you for joining well, us. thank you. Before we go, mm-hmm. uh, I want to ask you the question that I okay. to ask P.T. Barnum, and that is, could you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well,
2: you know, I was reading just a book
1: not long ago, by, um, and I'm going to lose the first name, but uh, I think it's...
2: Robert Hughes. I'm not sure he's the Times art critic, and he wrote a book called The Culture of Complaint, um, which is about the cultural clashes that we're having now in America between, um, for lack of a better term, between the right and the left about what shape and what values Americans mm-hmm. should be tilting for or, or, or fighting for. And the and his basic premise is also that most people are not taking responsibility for what's happening within the culture. Yeah. That'd be an interesting book to look
1: at. It's a wonderful brief book in, of essays. It's a wonderful book. Well, Doug Mishler, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you very much. This has been a joy. It has. It has.
0: P.T. Barnum has been brought to us in the person of Doug Mishler in a program that was originally recorded in the studios of Radio Curious in July of 1996, when this program was originally broadcast. The book that P.T. Barnum recommends is My Toils and Struggles, the autobiography of P.T. Barnum. The book that Doug Mishler recommends is The Culture of Complaint by Robert Hughes. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621 5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.